Okay, so we're joined by Roger today. How are you doing? I'm doing great, thank you. Happy to it's be here. Pleasure to talk with you. I think before we started, I was looking into your background. What I found really interesting is it kind of mirrors us to a certain degree. You were in banking, kind of in and out of banking for many years, trying things, dipping in and out of the startup world. I want to know kind of what was the catalyst for you finally jumping out of that corporate environment and heading into startups? Yeah, many things, I think, you know, <laughs> that would be a podcast by itself. But um, I would say in general, I, I, I'm just maybe a little bit hyperactive and I have a little bit of ADHD, um, but that's not the only reason. It's part of it. Uh, I would say it's, I was missing uh, um, creativity, impact, innovation, being able to shape an organization, even if the positions I had could actually help me were actually I, I could have an impact on the organization. It was just not enough for me. So I was um, uh, venturing out and uh, testing ideas since I was maybe 20, 21 uh, while working uh, as uh, in private banking. And at some point, you know, I just decided to quit the industry and give it a real try. And I understand you were kind of in Switzerland at the time. And I, yes. you said previously that it took kind of you leaving the country and actually getting into a new environment to really kind of get yes. into that mind, that entrepreneur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you yeah. know me, I, I have my ways. <laughs> but I find that really interesting <laughs> because it, it comes back to the argument of like, you know, the environment is so important and there's only so much that you can do as an individual to actually drive that change forward. It really matters, you know, the old adage about how, you know, the closest of your five friends you spend time with, exactly. you're going to reach exactly. the average. Um, I can relate to that strongly. And I would just love to hear your experiences as well about yeah. what happened when you switched up that corporate environment. You know, I was going from uh, the corporate environment to quitting, basically. Quitting because I was done and I was to give it a try, uh, starting startups with friends and so on. And then it was really hard. There was no network, no knowledge, really. I was in my early 20s. What did I know about starting a business, right? And my friends who are still and are still in private banking, they were telling me, Kraya, come on, why are you doing this? Go get a job. Okay, go back to banking. You know, go back to banking. And I ended up going back to banking, right? And then I'm there six months. And I'm like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I need to go out there. So uh, when, uh, you know, uh, I married a Norwegian, uh, and one day he came back home. We're living in Switzerland. He came back home and said, you know what? I got a job opportunity in Norway. What do you think about Norway? And I literally told him, it can't be worse than Geneva. Let's go. Because I was so ready to move away from my network, my environment. I knew that if I was staying, if I was going to stay in Switzerland, I was going to be a banker forever. It was written on my forehead. That's it. That was my life. Uh, and I wanted more. Uh, out of life. So coming to Norway was really the, the, gave me a great opportunity to create myself from scratch. What, what was that? Reinvent new, myself. What was that new, exactly? So what was that new start like when you were reinventing yourself? Like, how did you think about it? What way did you kind of, you know, position yourself to the world now, like, you know, ex-banker, don't want to be a part of that anymore. Like, give me a new slate. But like, how did that yeah. even go? Because that sounds like a tough task. I mean, you know, I, I think I didn't even, when I came to Norway, no one knew I used to be in banking. It's not something that was coming, that I was sharing in a conversation. I had a new mission. I was going to start my own business. I didn't know what kind of business. So I started by building my network and building my own community of founders. Uh, so 
it's very, very straightforward. I realized in a very straightforward way, I decided to host events for founders, monthly networking events. That was my way to understand better the ecosystem, get inspired and see what are the opportunities out there, learn from others. That's how it started. And uh, I did it in a very straightforward way. I created a Facebook page at that time. Facebook was huge, you know, a Facebook page, an event page, and started to promote it on expat groups and so on, and uh, incubator groups and so on. And then I was hoping to get five people, five entrepreneurs to come and meet me and become my friends. I was in a new country. I didn't speak the language. I had zero network. didn't know anyone. And actually 70 plus people showed up. And I was like, oh my God, who are all these people? And they were like, who are you? <laughs> so I was like, I don't know. I'm just organizing this event because I wanted to meet people and help you meet each other. And they're like, well, okay, so when is the next event? This is great. When is the next event? I said, like, well, uh, on the Facebook page, I said it's a monthly event. So I guess next, see you next month. <laughs> so nine months later, I was hosting 300 people at my events. Plus, 300 plus. So this is how it started. I started to, to meet entrepreneurs and discovered that I was actually passionate about entrepreneurship itself. It's also connected. You know, you get to know each other. I say that uh, starting a business is, the, is an accelerator program of your life. You get to really know yourself, your wounds, your hopes, your dreams, psychology, your own psychology and other people's psychology. So uh, there is another, I think another reason why I I'm passionate about entrepreneurship. It's because I grew up between, Swiss, between Switzerland and Morocco. So I was living in Switzerland and I will go, I'm born in Morocco. So we were, of course, visiting Morocco family and so on and going on holiday there. And I could, every year, I was living between two worlds, going to Morocco, poor, con poor country, good country, but like not at the level of Switzerland. And going back to Switzerland and seeing like all this wealth and luxury and me living in complete bubble with, you know, uh, having, uh, having uh, clients of high net worth individuals, royal, uh, you know, family members as clients. And I live in another world. And then I go to Morocco and I see beggars on the street. I see poverty. I see, you know, it was really this, I was carrying this feeling that there is something we can do. There's something we should do. What can we do, actually? Why are there people who have and others who don't have? Is there anything I can do to build a bridge to empower some of them? So uh, this, is, uh, this, was, uh, this is still, but this was the catalyst of everything I've been doing, helping people, empowering people, and helping them create the life they want. Yeah. So um, by, by, you know, and one of the ways uh, financial, trying to get into financial freedom and creating a business to empower yourself. So, you know, I can really, really, really relate to what you said there. Cause I, I grew up in Ireland and I remember I was three, four, five years old. I was like, ever, since then I've always gone back to India where I'm right, right now. And the disparity is just crazy. Right. And like the exact words you said, they're like the, like living in luxury, like you might very well be living in a normal middle-class house. And then you go back to your home country where people are in like pure poverty. And it's like, that's luxury. You know, that just having the roof over your head, a bed to sleep in, a toilet, you're like, this, this is great. So, mm -hmm. and that's such a strong motivator. So I can imagine that was like huge motivation every time you go back to Swiss, Switzerland that's and like 
you know, go back to the, Scan- the Scandinavian countries, but that new sort of drive to like, all right, let's, let's really get down to work here and let's make something happen. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, so where did that take you then in terms of, because I've, I've wondered this a lot, like how can you do something productive living in, you know, a wealthy sort of first world country to help people in the developing world? And wh- where, where, has, where have your thoughts taken you on that? So many places. <laughs> um, I mean, I have launched um, online programs and accelerator programs online that were and that that were helping founders from all around the world. So my audience has always been international. I've been helping founders from Africa, North Africa, India, South America, Norway, everywhere. So my international mindset, because I grew up between Morocco, Switzerland, now in Norway. Uh, makes me an uh, international person and uh, I want to, to, I feel like this is one word, I don't belong to one country, I belong to this planet. So this is my market, this is my world. Um, so that's one, I've been, um, I've been, you know, I'm trying to find the balance between uh, giving away knowledge for free to help those who can't afford my knowledge uh, via my newsletter and my content, and I even had many programs that were for free. While, of course, we, we're running a business. We're not uh, publicly funded and we're not a charity organization. So you have to find a balance between serving, helping as many people as possible while running a business. And actually now we're in the process of uh, finalizing the creation of the foundation uh, in Norway. So to continue in that direction. And one of our partners, um, I don't know if I can mention it yet, but it's the, uh, it's one of the number one in the world based in Norway that will uh, help us continue giving back because we don't have the resources, the, the hands to be on the ground um, and close to populations who would benefit from our knowledge. So we team up with another organization that will help. So we, we, we have that in mind to always give back. Nice. Um, Yes. Yeah, really, they're really garners a lot of support as well because people can always, you know, they always say tell a good story and it's not just for the sake of telling a story, but if you genuinely have a story that people, some people can resonate with and say, you know what, this is, I want, I want to align myself with this. Yeah. A question I have is that, have you noticed any sort of cultural differences towards entrepreneurship in these different geographies that you've worked in? Because, you know, you mentioned North Africa, Africa, India, obviously Europe. Like, have you noticed any like obvious cultural differences in terms of maybe businesses that they might start, ways they might do business, ways to think about investment? Yeah, of course. Yes, of course. But I, I would have so much to say. I, don't, I would not know where to start. I would say, um, I would say, you know, people from my experience with others, I, I really don't know where to start. Um, it, it is, it is sometimes challenging to work with people from different cultures because of the way we communicate, the expectations, the speed, the, the, the values as well. You know, in the Nordics, for example, it's very trust-based. We, we do business based on trust with many of my business partners. We don't have an NDA. We didn't start with an NDA. We didn't start with a contract. We get things done because we know each other, you know? It's a society that is very transparent and you trust. So uh, I had actually, I can tell you this. Um, right now, we have some issues with a company that uh, we invested in. And one of the reasons is probably because we have different values. Because we trusted them. We trusted them. And the fact that we trusted them almost blindly 
because of also their story. We trusted their story, whether it's true or not. Uh, and because of our values, we did not pick up on certain red flags. While they don't have the same values. So we gave the trust and started, went into business with them. While on the other side, they have a different culture, different background. So I think in this case, we're getting scammed, actually. <laughs> we're discovering maybe this is a scam. We've been scammed. We invented in the startup that had nothing. It just burned our money. So these are some of the issues I see. And uh, it's not, um, in the end, it's about getting to know the person. It can be a person from another country. But I would recommend to take time to get to know someone you want to do business with, especially if they're not part of your local network. Yeah, this is something I've yeah. spoken about. Yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt. This is something I've spoken about with someone previously, which is kind of framing it as the global south and understanding that they don't have as many resources and as much funding down there. And it's quite easy for Western countries to kind of swoop in and play a little bit of like a white knight role and be like, oh, we're coming with all our money and all our resources, this and that. But actually an, an effective way is to, to partner with people on the ground in those countries that really understand the culture, try and set up a base there of locals that can help spread the entrepreneurial spirit because they understand the culture, because they understand maybe the the kind of barriers that these uh, these different cultures experience compared to the Western world and actually try to build up from there. Um, because I think there is, not really from an investor standpoint, more, more so from like a startup standpoint, I think there's a little bit of this kind of, we're from a rich Western country and we kind of understand your problems and we're going to help you by swooping in, um, which I'm not sure is a long-term sustainable view, but we'd love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah. Well, you know, the, the company I'm thinking about like now that I'm mentioning is not outside Europe. This is even within Europe, you have cultural differences. So we don't invest in uh, companies outside Europe because we don't have any control over what's happening in the company and so on. And even in Europe, we didn't know what was really happening in the company. So this, as investors, this helps us become more vigilant and become more strict. And there are more and more of these kind of founders who become very good at storytelling, have charisma. And in the end, this makes some of the best uh, scammers out there. You know, they know how to grab your attention. They, they look amazing. They have the story. And you end up believing in that um, and they can be from your region. So it, it makes us as investors uh, more strict. We work now, we invest now in companies really from our network. So like friends of friends, this is how it works, you know, or we have friends in common or we have connections in common and we can do that kind of due diligence. Do you know him? Do you know her? Have you worked with them? Is this a real company? This is a question I asked uh, a friend lawyer yesterday. Uh, who turns out to know the company, I'm, one of the companies I'm considering investing in. And I was like, this is so good because, you know, that company looked too good almost to be true. I was wondering, is it a real company? They're like, no, no, no. I'm actually one of their lawyers. <laughs> and uh, so, and I sent an email to the founder saying, you know, small world. I just met one of the lawyers you're in dialogue with. So uh, uh, it makes investors more reluctant to uh, invest in companies abroad and companies they don't know. Because it's already very risky to invest. So you're trying to always reduce your risk going through trusted networks. Yeah. I feel like that, that profile of the, the scam artist, so to say, is even more prevalent, like with social media and the kind of culture that we have, where it's very, it's like a spotlight culture. 
it's very uh, look look what I'm doing and showing the world. And it's almost the, the extroverted people, the presenters, the talkers. <laughs> there's more weight on those kind of individuals because they have the loudest voice. You say, oh well, you know that person is you know so knows so many people. They must they must it must be legit. Like I mean, a huge huge uh, global example is the Theranos founder, right? Where the entire world was like, oh yeah, this is this is hundred percent, and then it turns out to be a complete sham. I was reading a while ago, like the correlation between like psychopathy and sales and how like in the corporate world and in the sales world, like psychopaths tend to do very, very well because of that huge level of charisma, natural ability to connect with others. And uh, it's something in our modern world, particularly in Western culture, that people value a lot. Because I remember when I was working for a VC as an analyst a couple, couple of years ago, you know, we had a founder come in wasn't the best presenter, you know, wasn't the best public speaker, you know, would come across a little bit dull. And that was the exact comment that our CEO made when he left. You know, I thought the company was great from an analytics point of view, because my background being in technology, I was like, oh, this is very interesting. I think what they're doing is, is, is solid. And the, the guy has solid background experience, everything checks out. But the CEO thought, nah, he came across a little bit too boring, bit, very lackluster. Next. But it is important to be able to sell your vision. Yeah, so that, that's true. Uh, it's very it's very important for a CEO because if you cannot sell your vision to uh, to an investor, can you sell your vision to a client? Can you sell uh, your vision to future investors? Because your current investors or the investors right now who are considering the opportunity to invest in you, they want to make sure that you can continue raising money and growing to yeah. allow them to have an exit. So I do understand why he didn't want to invest in them. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, like you mentioned, uh, these kind of profiles can also uh, be uh, difficult to, uh, to really see through the intentions. Mm-hmm. What, what is the trade-off? This very much sounds like a trade-off. Let's say you have a very technical CEO who's essentially built the company mm-hmm. and he, he or she is more of a, a, a doer. You know, they're more of like a, a programmer yeah. or a builder. They're not exactly the best presenter. And they come to you and say, hey, look, Roger, I want to raise investment. But you, you can clearly see they're not, you know, they're not the best public speaker, but that's not their forte. That's not their skill set. But they, their mentality is, but my product and my business is great. Yeah. So shouldn't I get investment based off merit? Obviously, it's not a perfect world because it's humans who are investing in other humans and have to like the yeah. person. But What's that trade-off? To what extent should somebody who's not a natural presenter go out of their way to become such to the point where it's yeah. then more about their ability to sell than the merit of their product? Now, I would say you, can, you have one who builds and one who sells. If you have one who builds and he or she is alone, they need to find somebody who can sell. If the person can sell, but you have no product, you know, you need to get the product. So we... It's um, that's why solo founders find it very hard to raise money from investors for many reasons. This is one of the reasons because they can't do it all. Usually, they're a tech person, they're not a salesperson, or they're a salesperson, marketing. They're great at building community, but they they lack knowledge on uh, the technicalities. So they have to find something to um, to strengthen. They have to strengthen their team by hiring a software development agency in the beginning to begin with, or a CTO. And same for the CTO, they need to build their team. And another reason why investors don't like to invest in solo founders is because as simple as this, imagine the solo founder dies tomorrow. You know what happens to the investment? It's as simple as this. 
So um, if you want, it's not necessary to have a co-founder, but it's ideal. No, it makes a lot of sense. Um, obviously, as an investor, you're always looking for ways you can minimize your risk, right? Which is what you referred yeah. to earlier. I want to cool, kind of touch on what you just said as well. I saw in your newsletter, you called something called uh, pre-to-typing, which if I'm not mistaken, yeah. is this concept of actually selling the product before you start building. So making sure there's mm-hmm. demand for it. I wanted to kind of like double click on that in terms of, I think there's, you know, this prevailing thought out there that, you know, I need to have a functioning MVP before I go to people, you know, then they're going to kind of kick me out of the door if I don't have at least something they can play with and doesn't look at least a little bit pretty, right? So can you maybe help to dispel that myth a little bit and explain this whole concept of selling before you build? Yeah, I mean, this is just like, this is what people think. We create our own reality. If we believe that we need a product to sell, then you won't do anything before you have a product. But it doesn't, you are, People in, and everybody is buying products they don't have yet. When you buy something online, like a ticket, a concert ticket, you know, flight ticket, when you book a hotel in advance, six months in advance, you're paying for something you will get. When you're buying some clothes online or some shoes and you get them four months, six months later, or a toy for your kids, do you know if it's already produced? No. Tesla. You order something online. Do you know it's produced? Probably not produced yet or in the process. There's so this is what you, this is the mindset founders should also have or at least test. So of course you need to know that you're going to deliver. We're not here to scam people. We're not here to sell something that you will not deliver, right? It's about selling something that you know you will deliver, that you know you can deliver. It's just a matter of time. So you promote it. You can say it's going to come, it's going to be available in four, six months. I've done it myself. When I built one of my online accelerators, I went to big corporate companies and I told them, I need your money today to create the platform. And in six months, you will be able to meet companies who are on the platform. And they said, yes, I've done it myself. Did I create the platform before selling it, getting sponsors and selling my courses? No. You know, I first sold my courses to see if uh, there is an interest. I get uh, a wait list. I got sponsors. I got partners. And then I was like, okay, this makes sense. Okay, now we can, I know how to make it happen. So now let's make it happen. And I made it available a few months later. And actually, we were even delayed because this happens. And I just sent an email to everybody saying, sorry, it's going to take us a few more, <laughs> a few more weeks to launch. So I've done it myself. Uh, it's possible to do it. It's uh, something that I highly recommend founders to test. This is what is prototyping. You can do it also if you want to be more sophisticated. You can have a landing page. It's the same process. You test. You see, you can even uh, fake the, the the algorithm behind if it involves an algorithm. I was talking to a startup lately who's building an AI, like a lot of people right now, uh, to help match um a certain category of people with another category of people. And I said, and they're like, yeah, we have like 60 plus sign up and this is amazing and we have traction. For me, first of all, 60 plus is not an amazing uh, traction, but that's another point. Uh, you can do more. But uh, I was like, okay, but what about getting paid for this? Like, but we don't have, again, you know, same mindset, but we don't have the AI. We don't have, we're making it, we're working on it. It's going to be available in three months. I'm like, but your clients don't care. There is an AI. They care about having a problem solved. So why don't you solve the problem and charge for that? 
Yeah, I mean, we could have, but it would take more time. Who cares? Right now, what are you really doing? You have a tech team working on it. Why don't you start understanding the customer journey, really the problems they're, they're facing, and monetize since you're getting traction. You're getting 60 users, individuals who are interested in using your future platform, get the information, tell them that you can solve the problem, do it yourself, because this is a, this is a, 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 something they can actually do manually. It doesn't require an algorithm. So many things don't require an algorithm, just do it manually, start charging for your services, or at least start testing to see what are exactly the frictions in the process, the problems, the possible solutions, get feedback and take that feedback, get feedback from users, take that feedback to your tech team. Don't wait for your tech team to finish the product and then go get feedback. What It could be a total waste of time. It's often a total waste of time. Yeah, so definitely adopting this mindset of kind of jumping in when you're half ready and, you know, never waiting for things to be fully baked before you actually jump in. And then kind of as a development of that, I think you probably answered this question already, but in terms of trying out lots of different things simultaneously versus, you know, trying to find and validate one idea and then push hard at it for, you know, a couple of months or six months or some kind of arbitrary timeframe, because we've collectively spoken about a variety of different methods on this pod. Um, obviously kind of falling into either the, you know, go out and code 10 different bits of products and ship them as fast as possible. And then whichever kind of two stick, you know, double down on that and slowly funnel your way down to a solution versus doing a lot of legwork up front, loads of customer interviews, trying to find that one problem and then only starting to write your first line of code. Um, obviously, each kind of situation is slightly different, but depending on the founder and, you know, what they're trying to build. Exactly. But yeah. It sounds like both methods could be appropriate given the right situation. I agree. I agree. If, I mean, I I talk especially to non-tech founders because I'm not a tech founder, I'm not a tech person. So I I want to allow people, enable them to test and go to market and make money as soon as possible. If they're a technical person and they can actually get a few MVPs up running in two, three days, you know, each time and test them, why not? You know? Why not? Of course. It depends on the skill set. Uh, I would just say that uh, an MVP should not take you three months to build. You should ideally, even before building the MVP, even if you're a technical founder, you should make sure there is a market, there is a need, there is a problem, there is a need for your solution before starting to build. Makes sense. So whenever we talk about going and testing potential benefits to a customer, potential features to a customer before they exist, how do you structure those conversations? Like you have them on the phone and you say, well, if I could build this, like what would you, because I've never done this before, but it's, in, it's very interesting. How, how would that conversation even go? Could you give us an example? Yes. Okay. So, I mean, when you start a business, you, usually you have either faced the problem yourself or you have seen someone facing the problem. One of the mistakes we do, we can do, is that we think immediately for solution. And when we go talk to potential users or customers that you have seen are facing the problem, you want to pitch your solution. That's how you do it wrong. That's, that's exactly what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't go to them and say, oh, yeah, what do you think about this? Or I've seen you doing this. What do you think about this solution? Would you use it? That comes at a later stage. First, you have to understand them. There is a great video. I have shared it in my last newsletter. 
uh, on uh, for the paying subscribers um, on uh, jobs to be done. So you can just go on Google or on YouTube, look for jobs to be done, milkshake case. Uh, and you will see where what where you will see a very interesting case from uh, McDonald's. So uh, when you do uh, customer interviews and where you're looking for the jobs to be done, which is a methodology itself, you are trying to understand what are customers going through? What, what are they going through when they face that problem? When, what happens before they face the problem? What happens when they face the problem? What are the solutions, the alternatives that they use to solve that problem? At this stage, you don't pitch your solution. You try to really analyze like you're a scientist in a lab looking for what is this rat doing, you know? Why is the rat going in this direction or in this direction? Are they eating twice per day or three times per day? You're just there to analyze and ask questions to understand what they're going through. So in the milkshake case, uh, basically, the company wanted to sell more milkshakes. So they hired these consultants uh, and um, who are using the jobs to be done methodology. So um, first, they started to just look at the, the clients, the customers. What are they doing? At what time are they coming? What are they ordering? Just looking at them from the outside, collecting data, collecting data. They analyzed it. They came back the day after, and then they started to. So you go back to the customer. You don't do everything at once. First, you analyze the customer. You ask questions. You analyze the behavior. The, how are they interacting with the other solutions? What are they using? How are they solving their problem? What is that problem really? Is it a painful problem? How do they feel about it? It's about the feelings as well. How do they feel about it? Is it something important to them? How is it impacting their daily life, their society, their, their life in society, their, their relationship with their kids, with their family? Is it about, uh, are they seeking prestige? Are they see like, there are all these elements. So um, to go back to the Minchik example, uh, they went back to the customers and asked them, so what is happening when you are buying this milkshake? What is the job you're hiring this milkshake to achieve? What is it supposed to do this for you? Why are you here? Like, well, you know, I'm here because like it's just uh, in the morning and I'm going to do my commute and uh, I'm, I'm going to be in my car for like 20 minutes and, uh, you know, it's convenient. Okay, but okay, convenient. So what... Have you tried other solutions? Have you hired other uh, other uh, solutions to solve the problem for the job? Have you hired other solutions for the job? Yeah, I mean, I tried the donut, you know, but it gets dirty. I have a banana. I tried the banana to do the job um, to keep me busy while I'm driving. But you know, banana. Then I have skin, and and uh, I tried the sneaker, but don't tell my wife, you know, she will get upset that I ate a sneaker. So the, you see, they're trying to understand. And then, okay, so what, are, what is this milkshake doing for you? It's keeping me busy. It's sweet. It's easy to hold. It's clean. Things like that. And then it has helped them improve the milkshake consistency, adding, you know, then they knew what to do because the company was previously just adding more flavors. They thought, you know, let's sell more milkshakes. Let's sell, let's add more flavors, chocolate, strawberry. No, then they realized after doing the jobs to be done methodology, they realize that what matters to the client is that the milkshake lasts. So they're adding crunchiness. They're adding things that makes it more exciting. They're adding things that gives it more consistency. 
So um, I highly recommend uh, to check the jobs to be done methodology. Tons of videos on YouTube to to mm-hmm. to learn how to run customer interviews. Right, because that I said. I guess from the perspective of someone's building something, it's like it shifts your focus from what you think would be good to what actually fits in with their their yeah. daily life around this process. Because we fall in love with our ideas. Yeah. You know, we just believe, oh yeah, no, you need this app. Oh yeah, I, I want this app. No, nobody needs your this app. Okay. We have enough apps. <laughs> or nobody needs another AI. You know, so many like like this, the last two weeks, I've seen at least three pitch decks of companies building something like ChatGPT. I'm like, do they know? <laughs> like, this is ChatGPT. Are they, are they aware? Like, yeah. why are you building this? Why are you doing this? Like, come on. This is a perfect example of like the hype train getting to that point, right? Where everyone's leaping on and not thinking about, you know, there's going to be huge concentration at the end of the day. The biggest companies are going to win out start building these kind of, you know, application layers and top of the same language models. If you want to do something in the AI space, you really need to have your own proprietary data set, right? Or you need to have kind of some of the top minds working on some groundbreaking technology or, you know, something that I've heard, which is the barbell method, which is if you're going to look at this AI problem, don't look at kind of the software in the middle, either look at the data or even the hardware. Um, and as you look at the kind of two ends of the scale like that, so don't get lost in something that's easily interchangeable. Actually build your moat around, you know, something defensible, i.e. new semiconductor technology and try and, you know, license off to NVIDIA or something like that. Or actually have a big data set that only you have access to and therefore are able to take insights that only you have. Yeah, you need a competitive advantage. Otherwise, uh, uh, there will be many like uh, like you. <laughs> I want to talk as well, Roger, on um, fundraising as well, because I'm helping a, a handful of startups fundraise at the moment. And you just see like a variety of different approaches. You know, you see kind of spray and pray. You see, you know, fu- like kind of founders who are still even figuring out who their investors might look like, you know. And it, sometimes it's, it's, I think it's fairly straightforward these days to know what your software investor is going to look like. You know, there's all these free resources out there. But I find for hardware technology or something that's a little bit more deep tech, it can be very, very hard because, you know, maybe conventional VCs don't really understand. Then there's a lot of kind of educational period. You know, it's very easy for most investors to sit there and be like, okay, I understand this app. I know generally what software is going to run on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But looking at something that's more hardware, takes a lot more kind of storytelling and understanding of the space around it. Um, I wanted to hear your advice on how to approach investors in terms of that. Like, should you kind of go out with an open mind, spray and pray, and then slowly funnel your way down? Or should you really think up front about targeting certain sections, you know, 10, 20, 30 investors and going all out on these um, specific names? Yeah, you gave the answer. That's the one. That's the last one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, spraying and praying is a is a complete waste of time. It can work, but you know you're going for volume. Uh, but you can uh, save your time and energy and find the right people by selecting them and telling them why you have selected them, and then the process is much smoother. So go to people when you're fundraising and even for hardware. So it's about finding first of all you should build that as you know uh, you should build your network with. Uh, Founders should build their network with the investors way before they need investors. So when you are a founder and have in mind to build a company that will require external capital because you, or you want external capital uh, to grow faster and uh, because you value other people's networks and expertise, you have to start build, uh, building your network as soon as you have the idea, unless you're planning on bootstrapping forever. So 
build your network always before you need your network because investors, it's all about minimizing the risk by knowing you, trusting you, getting to work with you before investing in you. So even in hardware, then if they're in that space, they should build a network with uh, uh, potential investors within that space who understand their industry, who understand the problem they're solving. If founders, when founders go to investors who don't understand their industry or the problem they're solving, they are going to uh, be educating potential investors. And in the end, it's very rare to change the mind of an investor who's used in, to invest in a certain category to start investing in something else. When they don't know what you're talking about, you're going to, I've done the mistake myself uh, in the past when I was myself fundraising and, and learning the process the hard way. I was, I was meeting investors who were interested in what we were doing. So they were very curious. But I spent so much time educating them. It was exhausting, educating them on what we are doing. And indeed, I was like, am I like a teacher here? Are they just learning from me to boost their ego and go to their colleagues and friends and say, oh, I heard about this company, you know, I might consider investing right now. I'm just learning. I'm like, come on, I don't have time to waste. So um, there is a lot of time wasted around the wrong investors. For example, so going to... Wrong investors means wrong stage for you. So if you're an idea stage, think about VCs. No, just forget about it. Uh, there is for each stage, there is a kind of investor. Idea stage, friends, family, fans, and fools. A bit later stage, uh, pre-seed, even pre-seed, you know, seed, but you have an MVP, you have some traction, uh, you have a little a team, go to angel investors. When you have some now, some paying customers traction and you are starting to scale, there are early stage VCs, accelerators, and et cetera. But targeting the wrong investors in terms of stage, industry, expertise, when they don't understand what you're talking about, when they're outside your industry, is going to be very exhausting for founders uh, and a complete waste of time. So I'm not into praying and spraying. I'm into finding investors, telling them why them because of their network, because of their expertise, because I value what they can bring on the table. I'm not just into money. I'm into smart money. And that makes them uh, realize that you have done your homework, that you came prepared and you know what you're working on. You have clear intentions, clear plan, and you don't get distracted. Also, investors don't like, will not go, will not invest with, uh, in founders who are in need or who are in a weak position, let's be honest, who are not in a good position. We're not here as investors to lose our money. We're here to, to bet on the best. So show, be, uh, be the kind of companies they would want to invest in, meaning be the kind of companies that don't need investors. So don't go to investors saying, uh, should, like, I need, I, I, I'm raising money. Like, no, I'm raising money, but from the right one. I'm picky with my investors. I'm picky. I know what I'm doing. So that's the, the, the attitude I would recommend founders to embrace more. That's, that's absolutely fantastic advice, definitely. And then kind of a little nuance of that, and you probably, you know, again, covered this, but in terms of finding a lead investor, because what I found is, you know, mm -hmm. obviously we all know VC is such a signaling game. 
And as soon as, you know, that one big name is on your cap table where you've got a term sheet from, you know, XYZ, a lot of, you start to see kind of a lot of the smaller VCs or maybe angels if you're trying to fill an early round start to flood in. I've heard that phrase exactly kind of a number of times in terms of, oh yeah, we're looking to invest, but you know, we're wait, just waiting for that lead to come and take like 50, 60% of the round. Um, does the same kind of rules apply in terms of finding that lead or that champion um, for your round in terms of, really identifying who they are, spending, you know, at least six months getting to know them and building that relationship. So when the time comes, he asks a lot easier or is there yes. kind of, you know, even, you know, further or separate advice you would give to someone trying to, you know, maybe they're raising their first round. They haven't really had investors before outside of friends and family. And they're just looking for that big institutional investor to kind of get the ball moving. Uh, I think that that big institutional investor uh, to get things moving doesn't happen after friends and family, rarely. Themselves, they want to see professional angel investors coming, validating you. So that goes back to what I was saying before, is that for each stage, there is a kind of investors. So before going to, uh, and, and it's all about building relationships. I, there, is a, there is an interview I've done with uh, Recharge Health that I invested in, and they got uh, some great names on the cap table. It took them nine months to get uh, one of the big names, and then it started to, things started to roll. Nine months to build relationships. This is, and they had, and they have, I don't, I don't remember how much they made, but they're up running. They're a global company, but still. And they have paying customers. It still took them nine months to convince one important investor. It takes time. So, so what's and everybody's waiting for that months? one. Hmm? What's happening in those nine months? We said, oh, we're building relationships. What is that process like? And Well, first, you need to get into that one, you know. So it's from one connection to another. And it just life happens. People are busy. People want to get to know you. Even those who will introduce you to the next level. They want to make sure you're trustworthy because it's their reputation on the line. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So before introducing you, let's say I just met you, before introducing you to my big VC connection that took me years to build and trust and I'm taking care of that relationship, I'm going to take my time with you to vet you. So yep. it might take the time it's going to take. Yeah. And then when I introduce you to that one, if you want to get into his, his or her network, same thing. They need to get to know you. Yeah. Maybe work with you, have some more requirements. So this is how it works. It sort of circles back to what you said at the beginning about having similar values as well, right? Because you might, after one interaction or two interactions with me, feel like, hey, actually, you know what? Me and Suraj have a lot of values in common. And then that, yeah. you know, that it builds off like that. Whereas it's like you meet someone and it's obvious and glaring that very, very different core values, then I guess that process is a lot longer or fails. You know, I gave you an example yesterday. So I met this uh, friend lawyer and I tell him about the company I'm going to invest in uh, because we share deal flow. And I'm like, okay, so right now I'm looking to this, this. And he's like, well, I know them. I'm, I'm going to be working with them. And I'm like, so what can you tell me about, about the founder? He's like, great guy. I'm like, this is what I want to hear. Great guy because you know Dan. I had that impression that it was a great guy. But, you know, I can be lied to again. I can be scammed again. <laughs> so I want to know your experience. Are they good company? Who do they have on the cap table? It's like, yeah, they have this, 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 this person on the cap table. So that, this is building trust because it's the same network because they know them. Yeah, yeah. It's a, one of my 
the directors at the firm I worked for was, I asked him like, you know, he, well, he had said, we, out of all the companies that we get, around 5% of them are just random inbound. 95% of the companies that we actually invest in are introduced through a, through a trusted contact. So I was like, okay. Exactly. I was like, well, how do people uh, get trusted contacts? <laughs> how, do, how does one go? When you have no connections, how do you actually go about finding someone who is one of these trusted contacts? In Very good question. That, that's yes. the general question, right? But his, his answer, just quickly before you, you go off, is like his answer was like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, well, that's very reassuring. Well, I might have some answers there. How to build trust. The, you, you start with your close network. Um, one of um, let me tell you how I raised money from my, for my last, my current investment company, my last uh, fundraising. I'll tell you about it. So uh, I'm very busy, visible online. So that builds trust as well. And um, there is uh, one person, uh, Stuart, my business partner now, and co-investor, uh, he reached out to me and he's been reaching out to me. And I'm like busy and I just don't meet people who reach out to me. <laughs> I have my, my, my activities and he's been reaching out and saying, we would like to meet, I would like to meet, I would like to meet. I'm like, okay. I said, he's in Oslo. I think we've been doing two, three months. I was just postponing. Next week, maybe in two weeks, we end up meeting. And he, and that was a great timing because I was starting to grow my company and I needed help. And I was looking actively for someone to join my company to help me with the deal flow, with doing due diligence on companies and so on. And he, he was interested in uh, looking into companies, starting to invest. So this is how it started. He, I told him, so I gave him an update on what I do. He said, oh, it's very interesting. I'm into investing. I just had an exit. and. I'm very curious about uh, you know, how to build a portfolio of startups. And I've been following you for a while. And my business partner has been following you for a while. And he told me about you. So I've been you know, building that trust online, visible. Every day I show up a little bit. And we are uh, we also part of, uh, we are in Oslo, in Norway. So it's also a bit trust that this starts from your network, from your local network. You can meet people. So his business partner recommended that he follows me or get in touch with me. Well, I didn't really know his business partner who also knew about me from somebody else. Then when I met him, there was already this familiarity. We know each other. We are from the same space. And we started working together immediately. I think after 10 minutes, we're like, yeah, we're in business. We're into business. Didn't sign an NDA. Didn't sign anything. We're like, okay, let's start working together to test the relationship and see if we get along, if we have a... If we're compatible, as simple as that. Uh, from one deal to another, uh, we thought that uh, it's really great chemistry. We get along. We want to continue working together. And naturally, uh, we started to talk about, okay, so what are the next steps? How do we do this better? How do we optimize our time, our work? How can we collaborate? How can we continue creating value for each other? Mm-hmm. He suggested to start an investment company. And he suggested to start bringing his network. So he has been my lead investor. I, six months before uh, creating the company, I was not planning on starting an investment company, really. Uh, we started it because he was interested. He was seeing me online. He was interested in meeting me. He was interested in working with me. Then he brought his network. 
to invest in the investment company. And I'm now the CEO of the investment company. When I saw him starting to bring his network, I was like, okay, maybe I should bring also some, some people from my network. <laughs> so I did as well. Uh, we put together a pool of uh, investors who became shareholders in, in the company. And the, the, the fundraising that was my easiest fundraising, because he was speaking on my behalf, he trusted me, he was my lead investor, and we targeted the investors. We actually uh, had to um, uh, to de decline some offers from investors because we didn't need their help. We didn't need their money. We didn't uh, want more shareholders. We uh, we put a list of investors we wanted to have with with our company for our company, and we started to approach them. And everybody in the team has a set of skills that is complementary. So you see, I have done myself the profiling of investors that understood what we're doing. I didn't have to pitch shit. I didn't have to explain what's the job, what's the business model, what we do. I didn't have even a pitch deck. You wanted James to talk about pitch deck or you, Suraj, maybe. I didn't have a pitch deck. I had uh, what you can call a, a business plan uh, explaining who am I, what we're going to do, uh, our plans, the strategy, go to market, what we do, who are our partners, and so on. Exactly, basically what you would have in a pitch deck, but more elaborated. Yeah. I had a meeting with everybody within 10 minutes. And then I say, okay, are you in? Are you interested? I can send you the, the business plan. And I give them two days to give me an answer. And already during the meeting, I already got the answer. It was like, yes, I'm interested. Just like this is a formality. Just send me the document so I can have a look and see what's going on. Yeah. Where are we going? And then let's get together. And what I also done to build trust again, mm -hmm. I offered every investor I was meeting I invited them for several meetings to get to know each other. They're part of my team. Yeah. So instead of going from an investor to another, I was talking about the other investors I'm in dialogue with, and I put them together online because they're in different parts of the world, online together to meet each other, build relationships, and build trust. So they, I tell my story, they tell their stories, they're excited, we're excited. And we didn't talk much about, and we talked a lot about, we didn't talk much about like, you know, the, the, it was more talking about the human aspect, the, who we are, our values again, uh, what we want to create together, and how to minimize the risk. Yeah. We talked a lot, and I talked about the risk of coming into that venture. It was even in the business plan. So these are the risks that you need to be aware of before coming in, before investing. And that has helped build trust again. Yeah. I invested in a, in a company uh, a few years ago called Choose Today. Uh, one of my best companies in the, my portfolio. And when I was, I was chasing the CEO, Andreas, to invest. I was begging him. I even did like this was a please, Andreas, let me invest. <laughs> let me invest. You keep on telling me you oversubscribe, you oversubscribe. This round, I know I can. I can get in. You're not oversubscribe. Just let me invest. I did it three times. He gave up in the, I was like, okay, Raya. She's like, okay, just give me some money. <laughs> And um, and what he was, what the reason why he didn't want me to invest, it's because I knew him from before, and he didn't want to jeopardize the the friendship. And he said, Raya, this is a very risky venture. I don't want you to lose your money. I'm like, but okay, thank you for telling me the risk. Okay, I want to invest. So he was very the fact that he was very uh, caring and conscious 
about his actions and the risks for his investors made me trust him even more. Yeah. So he's taking it seriously. It's super interesting because like it kind of, because when you talk about, you didn't even use pitch tech. I think a lot of founders kind of approach fundraising in this mechanical way of like, okay, I need to have the MVP, I need two customers, I need the pitch deck, I need to reach out, send this many emails and think about it like, like too, far too mechanical. Whereas what you're saying is, what does the pitch deck, what was the purpose of the pitch deck? What was the purpose of what you're doing here? The purpose is to build trust. The purpose is so they're on the same page and they have a good understanding and awareness of what you're doing. So if you can build the trust in another way, then what's, who cares? Because the pitch deck is just a vehicle of, of getting to where you need to go, essentially. And another thing I picked up on what you said there is like when you introduce these investors to each other, that probably brought huge amounts of value to them, be able to speak with other professionals in their industry in different geographies. It was just yesterday, actually, me and James were sharing a few LinkedIn posts back and forth. And there's a guy on LinkedIn, you might know Pratik Sanjay. And, you know, he talks a lot about investing, a lot about VC in, in the industry. It's like some interesting takes. And he was talking about how sometimes investors will invest in a founder because they want to meet the investors that that founder yes, already knows. Of course, I've so done that myself. Yeah. I've done it myself to build my network with other investors. I started to invest in startups to, to, to meet the others. Mm-hmm. And I imagine if you had invested in a startup that, where you'd met, maybe the company was average, but you'd met maybe like 10 solid contacts through that founder, you're probably likely to trust the founder as well. You know what? Even though your company didn't go the way that we all wanted it to go, the people you brought me, words have provided yeah. immense value so in some ways still still a valuable connection yes yes definitely i agree i totally agree it's very very insightful yeah and right i just want to know as well before we wrap up kind of like what are your blind spots in your in your opinion because obviously you know you're a big presence on linkedin you seem to have your kind of hands in a lot of different baskets you seem to cover a lot of different areas and we alluded to it earlier in the podcast in terms of, you know, having a team that can kind of fill in your blind spots and complement each other. What do you feel like your personal blind spots are? Yeah, what I'm bad at, right? That's what you're asking. <laughs> Indeed, yeah. In a nice yeah. euphemistic way. I got it. Yeah, I was having this chat with one of my business partners yesterday, actually, because uh, in the team right now, we have a lot of people. We have... Um, we... Yeah. So we're good at marketing, we're good at sales, we're good at outreach, we're good at getting things done, right? Everybody's good at that. But one thing that is missing right now, and it's a fo- we raised a point, so we're going to be focusing on it, is to get someone to do the boring task nobody wants to do. Because <laughs> no one likes admin, no one likes... Uh, you know, sending proposals to clients. We like to sell to clients. We like to advise clients, to coach them, to connect them to investors, to board members. This is what we do. Uh, and then sending the proposal, I'm like, oh my God, I, I have a, a client. I have, I'm, all, I'm already on the next move, you know? So I'm quite aware of that. Uh, I'm quite aware of that. And uh, I mean, I'm in dialogue with some virtual assistants right now. So I'm, uh, I'm checking many profiles. I'm... Uh, Yes. So this is what we're doing. And automat- uh, automatizing, um, automating as much, as many things as possible. That's what we're working on right now. So the mm-hmm. boring tasks are taken care of. And all they have to do is like basically not fuck up and not slow it all down because we've been there as well. It's like you want to move so quickly, but you know, some yeah. kind of admin thing or some hold up that takes weeks to clear 
it's holding you back. We've all been there. It's so painful. And the kind of, it's not only, you know, does the process get slowed down, but everyone kind of mentally slows down as well. It's like, oh, we have that thing that we're waiting on. That hasn't cleared yet. So like, there's no real rush to do all this stuff. And of course, in the startup world, it needs to be every day, every hour, like progress, progress. We need to be active. We need to be doing something. Yes, and building, making sure that you're building the foundation so you're not trying to scale too fast and the house you're building doesn't have a foundation and everything is collapsing. So I like to use that metaphor. And we tend, I mean, this is how I advise founders. I help them build the foundation to grow and scale in a profitable, sustainable way because all of us, myself, and this is why I use the advisors that I connect to my startups. I use them for myself, for our business to help us build a strong foundation, to be ready to scale. This is what we're doing now because it happens when things go well uh, and and things start to pick up, you're starting to get a lot of traction, you know, momentum, traffic, clients, requests, but you haven't, there is a gap here. We're often not ready. You see, we're often not ready to scale. We start to scale, especially if you're like profiles like us where, we're extrovert, we're outgoing, we put ourselves out there, we're getting that interest from an audience, from potential clients. But then if the rest is not in place to uh, be able to manage the deal flow and the growth, things can collapse. So I think we, this is what we also realized uh, recently, uh, and this is what we're working on. This is why also I was quite quiet last two weeks on LinkedIn. I had to be quiet to to slow down and build the foundation, refocus on the foundation. That's really interesting actually, because I feel like there's almost like a whole generation of founders that have grown up on this whole kind of like, you know, Facebook mentality, you know, move fast and break things, blitz scaling, all of this. And then coupled with a bull run over, you know, last kind of decade or so that really stopped with, you know, 2022. There's this kind of mentality, you know, like money is cheap, you know, we can always get funding, we can just completely overinflate our valuation before we even have customers or a fully functioning product or product market fit. And I think what you're describing there is like a reversion back to how things should be, which is build your foundation, get your product market fit before you start scaling too quickly and all of these things, right? So I think it's a a rude awakening for a lot of founders. Yes. You know, they will... uh... You know, they live and they learn. <laughs> they will learn. <laughs> if they want to grow too fast, they will learn. They will adapt and next time they'll do better. That's a great life lesson there. 100%. But right, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Um, before we wrap up, Lofty, if you want to do kind of any call to actions, I understand you have the visionary company. Um, maybe just quickly in a minute, touch what on what you guys do and what services um, you offer. Uh, so there's my newsletter that is available on uh, our website and uh, my LinkedIn. Uh, maybe the call to action is to, to have a look at the newsletter. I share actionable advice every Friday on fundraising and scaling, how to build the right foundation to scale. And uh, about what we do, we do two things. We invest in companies and we advise on scaling and fundraising. Now, to reduce our risks, we're going towards only investing in companies we advise because it's the best way for us to do our due diligence. Uh, so that's our model. If they need uh, uh, advisory services um, to help them scale internationally, we can help because we have an international network of non-executive board members and growth experts from all around the world. Fantastic. That's it, yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure talking today. 
It was nice uh, sharing with you. And uh, I hope we can get to do this again soon. I'm happy to contribute again anytime. Yes, 100% right. It's been a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Have a nice day. Take bye care. Bye-bye.